All right. Um, as I said, we're going to be a little bit all over the map tonight um, in terms of the particular passages we're going to be in. You have a packet in front of you, which hopefully um, you've got in all of the, uh, th- uh, I think, three pages now of Scripture passages. I also want to sh- direct your attention to uh, the very back, the bibliography. These are works consulted. I, I, I try to m- say this from time to time just so that we're clear and we're clear on what Wednesday night is. Um, the vast majority of the words in the packet that's in front of you are not my words. And I just want to make sure that everybody's on the same page with that. I'm not trying to pass them off as my words. It's normally why I include a bibliography in the back. Um, but they're often taken from these sources. Sometimes I'll make changes and things like that. And sometimes I do type some of the bullet points, but um, most of them are borrowed from other people and kind of laced together by me. And so I want to make sure you understand that. But there's a couple of, of, of resources on the back that I think are particularly good in regards to the things that we're talking about tonight. Um, Matthew Barrett at the very top, Salvation by Grace, the case for effectual calling and regeneration. Um, that has been particularly helpful in preparing, especially tonight's, last week's, and, and next week's as well. Um, that one is a, a really good resource. It's pretty accessible um, to, to virtually everybody. There's, there's not really anything in it that is, um, you know, he doesn't use a lot of $50 words and things like that. It's a lot of um, just very, very common stuff. I have it digitally, so I don't know how thick it is, really. I couldn't begin to tell you, so I don't know what it really feels like in your hand. But for what it's worth, that's a really good one. Um, there's two uh, John Piper books that I think are really helpful. Um, Finally Alive and Five Points. Finally Alive was also used tonight. I think that, that one's a really helpful resource of regeneration and rebirth, how, how new birth actually happens in the life of a believer. Um, he's always very particular about how, um, h- how he says the, way th- the things that he says, so, which is always really good. But my wife will tell me whenever she has, picks up a Piper book, she's like, every sentence I have to read three times. Uh, so, I don't know. Some people think like him, and some people don't, and it's just, that's different from author to author, I think. Um, another one on this list in the middle there, or kind of in the middle, Graham Goldsworthy. I would recommend almost anything he's ever written. Um, Graham Goldsworthy is maybe slightly more complex, slightly less accessible in, in some sense. Um, it depends on who he's writing to and what the reason the book was written. If the book was written to be in a seminary, it's going to be a little bit more highbrow in terms of the language that he uses. But um, there are some other books that are smaller and that, are, that are, he writes to be more accessible. He, Graham Goldsworthy is really good at taking the whole picture of Scripture and putting it together. And so he's, he's just really helpful at that, and he does it in a very compelling way. And uh, that's called um, um, biblical theology, is when you can kind of connect everything to the overarching story. And I think a lot of people get really excited about biblical theology when they read it, because they're like, I never thought about those things of, you know, the tree of life, and then the cross, and then the tree in, the, in Revelation. You know, like, linking all those things together, he does a really good job at that. And so uh, I would recommend those things to you. Any book on this list I would recommend to you. Um, all right. That being said, with what we were talking about last week, there, there's just a, let me just kind of go down the list here. I'm going to, in a, in a way, sort of review this twice, okay? But just bear with me, all right? 
So if you think about what we've been talking about, the first thing that we said early on was our condemnation is really twofold. Adam has sinned, and as such, we, there were two, things that, two ways that that affects us. One is that we're condemned from birth. Paul says, in Adam all die. So death penalty is given for people that are guilty. You need to understand that and really kind of wrap your mind around that. God doesn't give the death penalty to people who are not guilty, right? And so he gives the death penalty to humanity, which is originally not, the de- not what was given to humanity, but now is given to humanity. He gives the death penalty to us because we are guilty in Adam. We're guilty of simply being his children. Uh, but then second, we also inherit from Adam a corrupted nature, too. So that means that we are, are guilty by being in association with Adam, him being our head. But then as a result of, of that, we also are wicked from the womb. We, we're incended, my mother conceived me, David says. And he's not talking about his mother being in sin. He's talking about, I was in sin from the, from the beginning. I'm, I'm guilty from the get-go. And as a result of that, the kids come out of the womb knowing how to lie, cheat, steal, and, you know, hit their sister. And it's just how it is, and you have to teach them not to. Um, and so it, it, it's, um, it's, and then as a result of that, we then went into Christ, in the nature of Christ. And understanding Christ for who he is, being truly God, truly man, being fully God, fully man, uh, was, fit the bill to actually suffer for us, pay the penalty for our sin. But also he fit the bill to fulfill all righteousness, to actually do what was required of Adam, but that Adam couldn't fulfill or didn't fulfill. And he was able to do it. And so we gained his righteousness. He got our sin and the punishment for it. And there was a, a, essentially a transaction there on the cross. And on the cross, what we also said about that in the following week after that was that Christ on the cross absorbed the wrath of God that he had toward all of his children. So anyone who would ordinarily be fit to be punished for all of eternity, he poured out that wrath onto Christ. So the reason that hell is not an option for his children is because his wrath toward them is gone. It was poured out on the shoulders of Jesus, and it was completely satisfied. So when Christ is on the cross and says, it is finished, he means the atonement purchasing back my you know, children, God's children from the dead is completed. It's done. And so we said back then that if we're truly in Christ, then it is right to say our salvation happened there on the cross. We were saved there on the cross. Um, now, in his, what we talked about last week was a little bit more complex, but in his, his work, Jesus fulfills Adam's role Uh, of ruling over creation as the new covenant head whom we are born under, not by physical birth, but by new birth, where God's Spirit creates us anew. That means we are to be born again. We have to become a new creation and one born from God. And so if you'll think about Adam being the head of humanity, uh, Adam sins and, and we all die. Here is Christ set up as a new covenant head who actually accomplishes what Adam failed to do, and as a result, becomes a, 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 a new head under which anyone that is born like him of the Spirit is also falls. So those of faith are joined into the family of Christ. Now, 
as a, a new covenant head. And so what, what we want to zoom in on today, and I, I hope uh, in, in going through all of this you realize we kind of want to treat this as sort of like, a, I'm going to use a football analogy here, okay? So bear with me if you don't like football, but the West Coast offense, West Coast offense is just incrementally moved down the field a little bit at a time. That's kind of the way we're approaching it, is we want to take a concept that we just briefly talked about the previous week and then zoom in on it today. And so we ended last week with this idea of being born again and becoming a new creation. And so what we want to deal with today is how does regeneration actually take place? How does that come about? And to do that, we kind of have to also take into account all the things that we've come to understand thus far and apply them to what the Scripture is teaching us about how one is born again, how one comes to be born again. Now, I'm going to... I understand. Let me just make this clear. I understand from the get-go that many of us did not grow up with this understanding, all right? I, I get that, okay? And this is going to push against some of the, the ways probably you've heard salvation talked about in the past. I understand that. And in reality, I grew up in two worlds, okay? Just a little bit about me. I grew up uh, going to a Southern Baptist church in Corsicana, Texas, um, that was... I mean, name it, it was your traditional run-of-the-mill Baptist, Southern Baptist Church. As you would think of a Southern Baptist Church, that's exactly what Northside Baptist Church in Corsicana, Texas was. It's where I was baptized, that's where I responded to an altar call, that's where all those things happened, right, for me. And, and then also, my foot was in another world. On, on Tuesday, every week, my parents would take me to a Bible study of a man whom they sat under in Sunday school from uh, week to week at another church before I was born, when I was a very young kid. And, um, and in his class, he taught a different understanding of salvation, one that I'm more outlining tonight. And, um, and so pushing back against the church heritage that I grew up in, uh, and, and really kind of saying, I think what the Bible is teaching is, is this way that we are saved. So I understand it's not how most people grew up. But, um, but let's just see what the Scripture says about it, all right? Let's just follow the Scripture's teaching on it. Okay, so with what we've seen so far, let's put some of these things together. With what we've seen so far, several things are true at the same time. First, mankind is dead in trespasses and sins, and he is so corrupt of nature uh, that true God-pleasing moral good is an impossibility. Okay, like, let's just think about that for a second. That we're corrupt of nature, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, which is clearly laid out, we've read almost every single week, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul leaves us there in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, at the bottom of the ocean, all right? Not floating in the ocean going, help, I need somebody to help me. Not that. Dead corpse laying at the bottom of the ocean. That's where Paul has us, dead in our trespasses and sins. And then we go further, and Paul and then really Jesus both give us even more despair 
uh, Romans 8, 7, and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it, what is it? Cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. All right. Well, then John 6, 44. This is Jesus. Not that that is more significant than Paul or, you know, um, or, or any other. It's just, he says it here plainly to his disciples in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, so it's an impossibility. You can't. Um, and we've talked about that at length, but that's where we started first. Now, second, if we put that next to the second thing here, God's salvation of his people was secured at the cross. Obviously, there's Isaiah 53, uh, 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. You know this passage. Um, he died for our iniquities. Uh, it was secured there. Uh, what about 2 Corinthians 5.21? For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He, he, he secured it there on the cross. He died for us, securing our salvation 2,000 years before either any of us were born in here. I think most of you, right? Joe? Were you? No. <laughs> what was it? You were there? I saw it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so let's put those two things. It's an impossibility uh, uh, for our, ourselves to come to God um, that Christ saved us before we were ever born. Let's put that next to three. A person's union with Christ through faith must happen in order for salvation to be applied. So in space and time, in the here and now, Someone must respond to the gospel, must say yes to Jesus. They must profess faith and believe, right? That has to happen. You, you preach the gospel, you're going to hear me on Sunday by Sunday saying, repent, believe, this is the gospel. So ha someone has to profess faith and believe. That has to actually happen in the here and now. No one, hear me, no one is denying that. Literally no one. If, you, if you've grown up and you've, and you've heard... Calvinists are your enemy, and, and they're, you know, evil people and all this. Um, and they don't believe you have to actually become a Christian or anything like that. that that's not true, all right? That, no one is saying that. No one is saying that you don't have to profess faith and actually believe, be baptized, the whole lot, right? Um, Jesus says, John uh, 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, in five, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Um, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Um, six, Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Uh, Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
So it's very clear in the scriptures, it, it, they, in preaching to people, they exhort them, believe, be baptized, follow Christ, right? Over and over. So obviously there's, that has to happen in your lifetime in order for all of these things that we've said are true, Christ securing you in faith, to be applied to you. Yes, we're, we're all in agreement on that. Um, so then this reality presents a pressing problem for mankind. Because what we've said so far is that it's impossible for him to come. And he has to come. You see that? You have to come. You have to believe. It's impossible for you to believe. There's a hole there. Do you see that? There is a gap that wide. Well, maybe wider. Between, it's impossible for you to believe. You have to believe. There's, there's a big hole there that you've got to fill. And that the Bible actually does fill if you'll open your eyes to it. So, in order to be pleasing to God, He has to answer a call to the fellowship of Christ. However, the believing and loving response, which the calling requires is a moral and spiritual impossibility on his part. Moral and spiritual impossibility on his part. Believe, have faith. Please God through your faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Wait, what? In order to get a driver's license, you have to have insurance. In order to get insurance, you've got to have a driver's license. Right? How do you, how do you reconcile these two things? Well, you're telling me, on the one side, I've got to repent and believe. On the other side, you're telling me you cannot please God, which obviously repenting and believing would be pleasing to God. I can't do that. So then, what am I to do? So, what we're saying then is that, in this next blank, God must apply His calling, regenerating the sinner so that he is born again. This is the hole that the Bible is going to fill. Is to say that gap that's sitting there, the Bible is telling you, God fills that gap. You cannot fill the gap. It is impossible for you to fill a gap. You can scream at somebody all day long, choose to believe, and he will not and he cannot. God has to fill the gap. Period. Now, um, so what we mean by regeneration, let's define it. So God has to apply the calling. He has to regenerate the sinner to be born again. He, he's the one that has to be the actor there, because you can't. So regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit to unite the elect sinner to Christ by breathing new life into him so as to raise him from spiritual death to spiritual life, removing his heart of stone and giving him a heart of flesh so that he is washed, born from above, and now able to repent and trust in Christ as a new creation. As a new creation. That blank is new creation. So, there's a reason Jesus uses the term born again. 
Because it means to connote to you that you have as much to do with being born again as you did with being born the first time. You understand that? That's the reason that metaphor is used. You have to be born again. And then he goes on to explain that the wind blows where it wishes, just like the Spirit does. I realize that puts us, makes us on uneasy territory, which we're going to address at the end, okay? So let's, let's read this, and we're going to see this in a surprising place, of all places, from the Old Testament. Huh? Look at this. Told us this was going to be before the New Testament ever came along. Deuteronomy 29, 2-4. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. Two ch one chapter later, what does Moses say to them? The Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Who will circumcise their heart? The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Does that sound familiar, that little tag at the end? So he says that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Does that tag sound familiar? What is that? What is it? What did you say, Timothy? Okay, it's one of the greatest commandments. Where does it come from? Deuteronomy 6. All right? Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4, is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He gives them a command. This is what you've got to do. Timothy says it's one of the greatest commands. Jesus said it before Timothy ever did, that it's one of the greatest commandments. And, and so, here we are, and Jesus said, on this commandment, along with love your neighbor as yourself, hang the whole law and the prophets, right? It says, right there, sums it all up. Here's the command. You've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart. What's necessary for you to love the Lord your God with all your heart? He's got to circumcise your heart first. You can't do it. He's got to circumcise your heart. Okay, so there, there's that. Let's keep, let's, let's keep reading. Jeremiah 31, 33. Correct. Right. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. He's talking about a new covenant. They're going into, they're going into punishment. He's going to punish them. And he's saying, he's, he's foretelling the new covenant coming. Declares the Lord, I will put, who will put? I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Keep going. 32. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Well, he's been telling them this whole time, don't turn from me, have the fear of me in your heart. And the whole Old Testament is proof you can exhort a fallen man all day long till you're blue in the face, but unless God actually does something here, it's not going to happen. 
He has to actually make them born again. All right, Ezekiel says it too. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. What will he put within them? A new spirit. Well, the spirit's going to dwell within them? Yeah. In the era that we live in, what dwells within us as Christians? All right, we're seeing where this is being fulfilled. Okay, I will remove the heart of stone. Who will remove it? I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. In other words, they can't with their current heart. I've got to take out their old heart and put in the new heart by putting my spirit within them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after the detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own head. So he doesn't do it for everyone. I'm not going to do it for everyone, he says. And the people that he's talking about are people within and without the nation of Israel. There's some people that are in Israel that he's not going to do that for, he says. All right, Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. All right, so I think you get the point. You're seeing all those. God is, it, 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 rebirth, regeneration, is something that God promises He's going to do. I'm going to have to do it because you cannot. Okay. Highlighting then the impossibility of mankind performing his own heart change, doing his own heart surgery, are the passages that command him to do so. So I don't want to ignore the passages that normally people would offer up to me, but ha-ha, what about this passage that says he has to do it? Let's look at them. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Do you recognize the book? Have you ever heard of the book of Deuteronomy? What's significant about the book of Deuteronomy? Well, we just read from it. That's the significance that I want you to know right now, okay? And so we said the Shema comes to them in chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, then in 10, which is just by math, four chapters later, he says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. Be no longer stubborn. What is he telling them? The command that I've given you, Deuteronomy 6, do it. You've got to do it. Well, what do we learn 20 chapters later? You can't do it. In the same book. He tells them in the same book. But you can't. The whole Old Testament, you understand, is an exercise for the children of Israel to understand they are incapable of saving themselves. You understand that? whole Testament is illustrating that. You cannot do it. I have to do it. All right. Jeremiah 4, verse 4. You've heard of the book of Jeremiah? We just read from that one too. He says at the very beginning of the book, in chapter 4, verse 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. This is what Moses commanded them to do. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Israel, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. What about Ezekiel? You've heard of Ezekiel. We just read from it. Cast away from, all, from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? So a lot of people ask this question. Well, why does God command something that he knows we can't fulfill? Right? That's a reasonable question to ask. Why does he command something 
that he knows that I don't have the power to, to fulfill. Well, there's a whole host of reasons that you could say. Namely, you're going to have to depend on him to do it. You're going to have to come to him and, and depend, right? There's gonna, you're going to have to know that your salvation is not from your own hand. It doesn't come from your own choice, but from his. And you, you have to know that. And unless you know it, unless he opens your eyes to see it, you'll forever wallow around in your own effort, trying to provide it for yourself. But further, you understand, your, your guilt and my guilt makes the commandment to follow him necessary. You understand that? Your guilt of sin and my guilt of sin are wallowing around in sin makes it necessary for God to say, obey me. Right? Makes it necessary. And our violation of that command, follow me, proves that we are guilty of sin and we can't come out. Right? So Paul is right when he says the law was given so that trespass would increase. This is what Jeremiah is doing. This is what Ezekiel is doing. This is what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy, is they're giving the law, follow God, circumcise your heart, do it, follow the Lord, so that you will see your trespass increase. It makes salvation necessary because you can't provide it for yourself. Understand? Okay. So these passages serve to highlight, they're not something to run from. I'm not scared of them. I believe they're true. They're not something to run from. In fact, they're something that highlight our own inability to do so, something that God must do. He has to save us. He has to provide the salvation. So, um, in the prophets, uh, this next one, uncircumcision of the heart or ear, like we just saw in those passages, not only exposes the need to be circumcised of heart, but it also indicates an inability to interest oneself in the word of Yahweh. It, it indicates an inability to interest oneself in the word of Yahweh. Look at what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 6.10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that, you, that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Why is it that someone doesn't want to hear the Bible, wants to close their ears to the Bible, close their eyes to the Bible? Because they're uncircumcised of heart. That's the reason. And only God can do the heart surgery of replacing that heart with a different heart. And when he does, what have we just seen tonight in the report from, of Sam? I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better illustration, right? <laughs> I didn't even pay for it. It just came to me in a text message. So that's what happens in regeneration. All of a sudden now, this person has an appetite, right? So you got someone on the deathbed that they're just keeping alive with a, 
with a, you know, iron lung or whatever it is they do now. They keep them alive just on whatever it is. And Lacey's looking at me like, that is not what we do now. Uh, I, oh, ventilator. There we go. All right. They're keeping him alive. It's all the machines doing the work. That's it. He's dead. And then all of a sudden, God, boom, makes the person alive. When they come awake, what is it that they want? I need water. I need food. They want to start eating and start drinking, right? So that's exactly what we're seeing in Sam's case or in any other case is, is when new birth happens in a person, all of a sudden their appetites change. And they go, hey, this is a different guy here. Well, all of a sudden he's not, he's not falling asleep during the sermons. All of a sudden he's, he's reading the Bible and he's following along and he's wanting to know and he's hungry and he's desiring. What do you think that is? You think that's just, oh, he, he's intellectually stimulated? It's new birth. God has changed his heart. All right. Um, so, next one. Further, it seems from Jeremiah 9.25 and Hebrews 9.24, which is a, uh, Hebrews is a quote from Jeremiah 9.25. Let's read it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Now, we've already said, if you're circumcised in the flesh, but you're not circumcised of heart, then, then that's a problem, and only God can circumcise you in the heart. Now he says, if anyone is circumcised in the, in the flesh only and not circumcised with the heart, I'm going to punish them. A work that he did not do in their heart, which he alone can do, he did not do, and he is going to punish them, he says. Um, and, and so it says, it, it, it seems that in those two passages, that those who are circumcised in the heart would be saved when the rest of the nation was judged, but circumcision of the heart appears equivalent then to regeneration. Circumcision of the heart is what we mean by regeneration. That's what we're saying. That's what the New Testament is saying, new birth, regeneration. The Old Testament is saying circumcision of the heart. Uh, even the New Testament says circumcision of the heart. But, but those, they're the same thing. They're equivalent to regeneration. While the writing of the law on the heart involves the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, making the recipient into a spiritual temple. So this whole, whole thing, that whole conversation, putting His Spirit within you, circumcising the heart, regeneration, new birth, those are all the same things that we're talking about. That's all the same process. God has to do that. Um, so Scripture tells us that man is absolutely... This is going to be where I push a little bit. Okay, just get ready, all right? Man is absolutely and totally passive in spiritual regeneration. Think about that for a second. Scripture tells us that man is absolutely and totally passive in spiritual regeneration. God alone is the actor. Man is acted upon. Therefore, it is only appropriate to label regeneration monergistic. M-O-N, I know, Shannon, M-O-N-E-R-G-I-S-T-I-C. Monergistic, meaning God works alone. That's what uh, monergistic, uh, mono, meaning alone, uh, ergo, meaning work, monergistic. So, just to drive that point home, I won't read all of these, but you'll see pretty quickly the point here. God working alone. For neither circumcision 
for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but new creation. Ephesians 2, 5-6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that is God, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But further, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Colossians 2, 11 to 14. In him you were also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, who made you alive? God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then t- Titus uh, 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. I believe. I confess. I want to be baptized. Nope. Those did not save you. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. How did he save you? He washed you and renewed you by the Holy Spirit. That's how you were saved. I was on the pew. The pastor told me, come down front. pastor told me, repent and believe. And I did those things. That's not how you were saved. You were saved by the indwelling Holy Spirit and the washing. That's what he says. He saved you. No, no, no. He threw me a life preserver. I was floating in the water like this, and I was saying, help, help. And he threw me a life preserver. But hey, sinner, you've got to reach out and take it. False. That's not what he says. You were dead. Bottom of the ocean. Buried under gallons and gallons of water. There was no coming up. You were dead. He made you alive. Well, it's going to make us uneasy. It's got to. Monergism. Monergistic salvation. Because that, that gives this guy that I can't see entirely too much power. We have to put him in his place. I gotta, I gotta do something here. It's gotta be, it's gotta be partly my choice, right? Well, there is a contrary argument to monergism that you will hear. You grew up under. I grew up under. In a lot of Baptist churches, you will grow up under a contrary argument to monergism that says that at Jesus' death. God has supernaturally restored to all men a measure of His Spirit through the prevenient grace, P-R-E-V-E-N-I-E-N-T, prevenient grace, which means grace that came before. Pre-vino, meaning come before, to come. That flows from Calvary. So, there are, I'm going to read these verses and you will see that they're scant, perhaps, in their proof of the point, I think. Um, 
John 1, 9 to 13. Actually, really, it's, it's um, well, it's verse 9, really. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That verse, those that argue for this prevenient grace, they say, tells us of the prevenient grace that God has given to us in Christ. The, the light, that is Jesus, came into the world and he gave light to everyone. Basically taking them from the negative, dead, trespassing sins, to a neutral position. Where they could now, of their own volition, reach out and grab the life preserver or leave it. And they would say, well, it's necessary. In order for someone to be guilty and condemned to hell, they have to have the free will to be able to choose that life preserver or not. That's what makes them condemned or what makes them saved and secures their salvation, they would say. He gives light to everyone. See, there it is. John 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, this is, he's on Calvary, he's on the cross, will draw all people to myself. Everyone. I, I'm, I'm lifted up on the cross and I'm going to draw all people to myself. Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Right? That's, well, he's right there, he's saying, look, it's, there it is. He's brought that provenient grace, given it to all people. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. They've got to reach out and take the life preserver. Can't you see that there in the passage? They would say. Um, so in this view, mankind exists in an intermediate state whereby the process of regeneration, being born again, has begun due to the application of prevenient grace. So it's begun for everybody on equal footing. Yes, Terry. I see that hand. God bless you. Go ahead. Okay. Give me, can you give me to the end of this? And then we'll go over. Um, so, uh, but, it, but is incomplete... Because regeneration is still contingent upon whether or not man will cooperate with God. This view is called synergism. Instead of monergism, it's synergism. S-Y-N and then ergism, just like monergism. Um, so... That view says, look, hey, here's a, a life preserver. You've got to reach out and take it. And uh, lest you do that, um, you can't. Now, that's not to say that there aren't passages in Scripture that exhort the congregation. We've already seen a few of those. There's plenty more um, in Scripture that will say, repent and believe, and are an exhortation to everybody. There is a broad call of the gospel that goes out to all. But of course, when it comes to these passages here that are mentioned, first of all, in, John, in the John passage, John 1, um, the word that he's talking about there, uh, giving true light, obviously that's Jesus. He's not, in the context, he's not talking about the illumination to salvation, like that kind of light. The context of what he's talking about is that he's coming into the darkness and he's going to shine a light and he's going to expose those that want to stay in darkness. That's verses, where am I at? verses 10 and 11. And then those who want to be in the light, right? It's going to expose. Jesus, in other words, is coming 
to set mother against father, <laughs> right? <laughs> to, set, to set husband against wife, to set brother against sister, to set families against each other. Jesus says, My, the work that I'm doing is going to turn people against each other. And, and that's what he's saying here. He's bringing the light and shining it in, and it's going to expose those that are of the dark and those that are of the light. Um, in t- John 12, when he, he says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will dr- draw all people to myself. He's just had a conversation with a Gentile just prior to that. Um, before that, he's talked to several different uh, people of different um, ethnicities and backgrounds. And what he's saying there is that I'm going to actually save all people. And what he means is not every single individual. We know that's not true. What he means is I'm going to save the Jews, the Greeks, basically Jews and Gentiles. I'm going to save all kinds of people. So you kind of have to watch out for that. The context will help you understand what and who he's talking about. Just because it says all doesn't mean it's every single individual, but all of the types. Titus 2.11 um, for the grace of God has appeared to bring salvation for all people. Again, uh, he, he is going through mentioning Gentiles and all that in the previous passage, the same kind of context of John 12. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear, or trembling, fear and trembling. Uh, note 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Um, Paul is talking to Christians there, and this is a sanctifying work that they are to do. They are to respond in faith, and they are to keep growing in their faith. This is not coming to faith for the first time. Um, ultimately, the biblical teaching of new birth has been laid out, uh, as it's been laid out, is somewhat unsettling for at least three reasons. I'm just going to go through these quickly so we can get to Terry's question. First, it's unsettling for at least three reasons. First, it confronts us with our hopeless spiritual and moral and legal condition apart from God's regenerating grace. Second, it refers to something that is done to us, not something we do. Third, it confronts us with the absolute freedom of God. So it's, it can be troubling because we look at a situation like that and, um, and it can be difficult because we're, we're thinking about salvation. Hey, it's fair for everyone. Throw the life preserver out there and reach out and take it. And the Bible is saying, no, you're dead. You can't reach out and take anything. You're dead. And God has to make you alive. And, and that is unsettling because... Wait a second. Who has the, the power here? Terry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who, who's he talking to? Yeah. Yeah. So, and what is he talking about, specifically? Is he talking about salvation or repentance? He's talking about repentance. There's a church that is unrepentant right now. And they're a church of Christians that are unrepentant. And he's urging all of these churches, five of them out of the seven, to repent. Repent of your sin. An act given precisely to regenerate people. Um, As Paul says, and we're going to talk about this next week, as Paul tells Timothy to pray for all people, um, because, who knows, God might give them the gift of repentance. Um, So, 
the evidence of his giving them the gift of repentance is that they repent. And this is an act given specifically to Christian people in whom the Spirit dwells. And so he's making the plea to the church, open the door. Um, you Right now, you've kind of moved Christ out to the margins of the church. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, and, and, and let's, let's understand too, even if it were, even if there's a call to the unbelieving, it's no different than my call at the pulpit saying, repent and believe. The reality that the Bible is saying is, everyone has to have, is going to have this call, or obviously there are people that die without that call, but people are going to get this call broadly. You're going to preach this call, repent, right? The ones that do, and that's the question we're dealing with. How is it that someone actually does repent? How is it that it happens that a, a person that we know that now lives in another state is all of a sudden his eyes have been opened and he repents? How is it that he came? The call has been made by me. The call's been made by his wife. The call's been made by a number of people and has told him over and over. There's been arguments. There's been debates. There's been all kinds of things. What was it that, that finally was like that, where the lights came on? And that's what the Bible is saying, that is a work of God. You can't do it. The person cannot do it. Somebody outside the person cannot do it. Only God can do that. And that's where, where, what makes us uncomfortable. He doesn't do that for everyone. It's necessary for salvation for that to happen. But he doesn't do it for everyone. Well, why? Why doesn't he do it for everyone? His choice. That's what the Bible tells you. So when we, when we look at the whole scope of salvation... It goes far back to, and, and maybe I shouldn't even say this, it goes as far back as before the foundation of the world. Here's his election. Here's what takes place in space and time. He, the spirit, he puts the spirit into a person who is dead, and is trespassed in his sins. He also puts the gospel in the mouth of some person that tells it to him. The preacher who's preaching 1 Corinthians 5 doesn't even know this person in his pew just preaches. And all of a sudden, he came alive. God puts the Spirit in him, opens his eyes, and it comes. Now, we're going to talk about next week something we refer to as effectual calling, which is, okay, but does God bat a thousand? If God puts his Spirit in him, maybe he puts his Spirit in a thousand people, but what if 900 come to believe? Just because he puts his spirit in them, do they does he necessarily bat a thousand? I mean, that's the question we got to take up, right? That's the next thing we got to deal with. Do what? <laughs> does he bat a thousand? I mean, that's the question, right? Does he bat a thousand, or does he? All right. Well, you got to come back next week. It's the only time I've ever done a teaser. <laughs> There's a trailer. <laughs> next week. <laughs> In, in a theater near you. Um, oh, we've got to deal with that question. Because um, that, that, isn't, that, isn't that a question? Right? It has to be. It, it, does God put his spirit in, in you know, billions of people, maybe? And, and we only see the ones that do come to salvation. Third, it confronts us with the absolute freedom of God. Yeah, 
Yeah, so, so, so it, let's look at this person that we know in, in Tennessee. He must profess faith in Christ. He has to. No. That's what I'm saying. We look at it and we say, yeah, the life preserver has been out there for this individual and he said no a thousand times. And a thousand and one time, he grabs the life preserver. That's the way we, we observe it. We see it appears that way. And what the Bible is telling you is that isn't the way it happened. The man was saved first 2,000 years ago when Christ died for him. But he was saved before that, before the foundation of the world, for God actually knowing the cross was going to take place and looking at all humanity through the cross. Moses was saved that way. Abraham was saved that way. I was saved that way. All right? Before the foundation of the world. So then he was saved 2,000 years ago when Christ died. Then he was saved by by God actually putting the Spirit in his heart, giving him the gift of repentance, and then he responded, which makes repentance and faith that he exercised also a gift. That's something God gives. That's precisely the reason it should make you uncomfortable. Until you realize that God is good, He's gracious, He's loving, He's merciful, He's kind, He's all-knowing, all-powerful. He's the God that's deserving of worship. So that's precisely what I'm saying. That's the reason that, that makes us uncomfortable. Because Jesus says, No one comes. No one can come unless my Father draws him. Just before that, clue for next week, just before that, he says, everyone my Father draws comes to me. No one can come. No one can come unless God draws him. Everyone God draws comes to me. And I raise him up. I don't lose one. It makes us uncomfortable. Let's just be honest. It's a little bit troubling. That I, well, I have nothing. No, and thank God you don't. Because the Bible also tells you over and over and over again, you wouldn't choose it if you had that option. If you're floating in the water for a thousand years and that life preserver was just screaming at you in the face and you could see the boat in the distance, you would never reach your hand out and grab it. As I said before, the prison that we're in, sin and death, has no fence. We don't want to come out. That's the problem. Now, I'm not asking whether you agree. Are you tracking with me so far? You're tracking with what I'm saying. All right. Whether you agree or disagree, I'm okay with that. I can live in a world where people disagree with me. That's okay. All right. It happens all the time. As long as you're tracking with me. I'm saying. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and all the many intricacies that are within it. Sometimes the difficulty of our own inability to just wrestle with what's there. Our own thought processes of things we've always heard, we've always known, or we've always read, or we've always seen. All that can be really challenging and, and difficult, and, and I want to be sensitive to that. So, Lord, I, I, I pray that you would just do the work in our heart. It, your word always does the work, and I, I know I'm worried about that. I just pray specifically for our congregation that you would, and you would help us see the, 
the magnificent glory of your grace to us, where you have just opened upon us grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy that we did not deserve, we could not possibly earn, we could not do anything about, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and you made us alive. What a magnificent picture of salvation that is, and we may never understand all of that, much less why, other than you are gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, and we are grateful for it, in Jesus' name.